Hello and welcome to this month's Great Insights podcast. I'm Clem Silverman. In this program, a little longer than usual, we have two in-depth interviews focusing on Chinese investments in Africa. Emerging economies have been playing an increasing role in the global arena and have thus justifiably attracted an increasing level of attention. Moving beyond stereotypes and preconceived perceptions has however proved quite challenging. China, as the dominant new actor in Africa, has been the focus of much of the talks. Later, Anna Rosengren from the Economic Transformation Team here at ECDPM asks China-Africa researcher Solange Chatelard about the integration of Chinese farmers and farming practices in Zambia. So the Chinese are no longer allowed to produce, and, or at least sell, they're not allowed to sell at this market tomatoes, onions, potatoes, those vegetables and those fruits that are produced by local producers. Um, who decided? That was the authority of the Tuesday market. But firstly, I am joined by Professor Xiongyang Tang from the Tsinghua University in Beijing, who explains if Chinese economic zones, or SEZs, have been successful or not in several African countries. So far, the experience has been mixed. These zones are modelled on similar enterprise areas in China, like technology parks and free trade zones, which have contributed to China's development. I'll just begin by thanking you very much uh, for joining me. It's my pleasure. And if you wouldn't mind, just if you could please provide a bit of background and explanation on the concept of special economic zones and how they delivered on expected results in China, and if there are any lessons to be drawn for developing countries, in particular in Africa. For in China, the special economic zones uh, had a very important uh, significance for the country's development. So since 1979, first uh, four SEZs were established as experiments uh, to explore the uh, functioning dynamism of uh, market economy. And then this uh, special SEZ models are spread spread over the uh, country. So later we have uh, uh, now almost hundreds of uh, uh, SEZs uh, in China. A number of these uh, special economic zones uh, uh, became uh, symbols of development uh, and uh, uh, symbols of uh, successful market transformation, uh, in successful market reforms in China. Sorry, was there any particular reason why China was able to do that uh, better than than other countries? And and how uh, then can you apply those those sort of um, benefits to um, to African and, and developing countries? Actually, China itself doesn't have a very definite zone model. As I said, China had hundreds of special economic zones. But in fact, not all of them were successful. Only maybe one third of them or a small part of them hmm. have grown, really grown, grown and then became successful. But what's important is this zone development was closely related to the whole country's economic reform. So the zone and the country's reform, they are complementary to each other. But the lessons, the most important lessons 
for the for African country is uh, to make these special economic zones integrated into their country strategy. Okay, so so the current African countries that the Chinese have decided to in, invest in these uh, these special economic zones in six African countries. Um, so how successful have they been so far? Have, have you seen any of these wider reforms um, that you re- you refer to as, as being sort of seen as a success? Or have they sort of slipped back into the pattern of, of decline or just being an enclave of, of generating a bit, a bit of wealth, but then um, not actually anything wider? Seven zones, but in six African countries. Seven countries, yeah. Seven yeah. zones, six African countries. Two in Nigeria, I think. Is that right? Right, yeah. yeah. And then actually, the, the one in Algeria plan was cancelled already in 2009. Mm. Because the Algeria government, they changed their investment laws. And the Chinese investors, they already gave that up for a long time. So, uh, in fact, then there are only um, six zones in five African countries okay. uh, really ongoing. And these, are, these six zones, they were approved by the, uh, and supported by the Chinese Ministry of Commerce. Uh, so, apart from these uh, six zones, there are still a handful of uh, uh, other uh, Chinese invested zones in, in some African countries, for example, in Uganda. Or in uh, in Ghana, there are also some plans, but they are not included in the Ministry of Commerce uh, plan yet. Okay, so these okay. are just uh, some uh, like uh, the general uh, overview of the numbers, and then how successful that the question is. Uh, yeah, I would say they uh, all of them are progressing much slower than they expected, uh, and uh, amongst but the situations are pretty different. So for the uh, like for the Egypt for the Egyptian zone, they were there for the longest time for already um, more than fifteen years, and uh, uh, they themselves uh, like in their original zones it was a one square kilometer, and in this one square kilometer startup zone they were already quite successful. Uh, and uh, it was all booked, but the bottleneck for that zone was uh, the uh, expansion. So because they didn't have a uh, land for expansion, and uh, then uh, just uh, at the end of two thousand thirteen, they uh, signed the contract with the Egyptian uh, government. So after uh, almost uh, four years uh, negotiation with the Egyptian government, because uh, there were like uh, uh, some uh, misunderstanding between each other and also because of the political uh, situation there, then the expansion was uh, yeah, uh, postponed again and again. Mm. But at the end of last year, they finally signed the contract and then expect to grow very fast. Uh, but then for other two zones, like uh, in uh, Ethiopia, the Eastern Industry Zone, and then the Orgon Zone in Nigeria, they uh, were very slow at the beginning. 
So because uh, of the 2008 economic uh, downturn uh, in, in global finance, both zones uh, developers uh, were affected. So they were slow at the beginning, but then both had some very good chance recently. So in Ethiopia, I think probably you also have heard about this Hua Jianxu company, which also in which invested in the zone, and then this shoe factory yes. they grow very fast. Just within two years, they grow. They already employed up to three thousand five hundred people, and so actually it's rather. Uh, just as uh, this zone alone, uh, this factory alone made the zone a uh, success uh, uh, during last uh, two years. And now I heard also even Unilever wants uh, to invest in this eastern zone. Yeah. And then this uh, Lackey and then the Mauritius zones, I consider them as a, uh, still quite uh, Quite slow, yeah. It's not very satisfactory mm. because the Mauritius zone is the uh, the slowest because they haven't uh, they are still in the process of construction. So, so I'm curious. Uh, many African countries have their own initiatives, you know, development co- corridors, uh, export processing zones, economic right. clusters, growth, pro- you know, industrial parks, and etc. So, um, are these special economic zones acting independently, or what? Are, or are there any link- any linkages between these strategies, um, the SEZs, and um, and what p- potential for further economic development could those bring? I think most of these uh, zones in Africa, they are linked uh, to the uh, to their host country's uh, strategy. Mm. And as to the Ethiopian zone, it was the first private-run industry zone in the country, and it actually helped the uh, country, helped the Ethiopian uh, government uh, making make laws for make regulations mm. uh, for private industry zones. But just finally, perhaps. If there were, if you could tell me about any impact on uh, local private sector development uh, of these uh, these special economic zones, and whether they have a positive or perhaps even a, a negative uh, impact on the on the local uh, yeah private sector. There are quite a uh, different uh, situation mm. in each country. So the Egyptian zone, uh, a part of them uh, aims uh, to like. Uh, go to the local market. So that's more like an import uh, substitution. Mm-hmm. And uh, another part, uh, they aim to enter the European market because Egypt uh, has a quite uh, preferential trade uh, um, terms with uh, Europe and even with US. So this, uh, I think for these uh, companies which aim to uh, enter the Europe and the U.S. market, then they actually have less competition with the local companies. And but I also, to be honest, I don't see very a lot of uh, uh, linkage between the. Yeah, but I was there only in two thousand nine, mm. so I didn't see a lot of linkage between the zone and uh, so the. the manufacturers in the zone and the outside uh, uh, suppliers. Great. Thank, thank you very, very much for your time. Okay, yeah. Also, my pleasure. And thank you for, yeah, for the interview. That was Professor Tang talking to me last week. 
You can read more from him in the May issue of Great Insights. Coming up now, the April edition of the magazine had the thematic focus of emerging economies and Africa. My colleague Anna Rosengren speaks to Solange Chatelard, who has written an article looking at Chinese agricultural investments in Zambia. As I said at the top of the programme, moving beyond stereotypes is challenging, but here is a report which examines what Chinese actors are actually doing, or not doing, on the ground. Well, could you give us a brief background of who you are and your research on China and Zambia, and also why Zambia? So my PhD looks at how um, looks at sort of the growing involvement of, of, of China, particularly Chinese people, Chinese investments into Africa, and I'm doing that through a case study of, of Zambia in southern Africa. I'm interested in the in the everyday, in the ordinary. Um, so sort of very grassroots, bottom up. You know, how do people um, live their lives, and how do they how do they perceive of their lives? How do they understand the experience from from their perspective? And can we, from that, um, draw any conclusions that are more general about sort of a broader process that is taking place? Um, not necessarily just about China um, and its growing role on the international stage, but you know, can these ordinary um, changes in representation, in expectations, in values, and desires tell us something about how people are changing in general? So not just in Africa or in China, but perhaps here in Europe as well. You know, what does it say, what does it reflect about the, the social and economic uh, sort of contemporary reality that we're all sort of faced with? And uh, in regard to what you said about representation, etc., there is a lot of research going on, there's also a lot of media reports on the Chinese investments and activities in Africa, uh, where which some would be more correct than others, I'd assume, and what would you see are the major uh, discrepancies between the kind of common use portrayal of China and what China is really doing, what is going on on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and can you see that there is a difference there with, between the public and the more private actors? Well, I think the first obvious um, misconception is, is, of course, that China is an entity, is, is a monolithic mm -hmm. entity. We hear a lot about that. And, of course, um, China is, 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 it doesn't exist as sort of this one scary dragon that is breathing fire down people's backs, but is, is of course just an ordinary, uh, ordinary people. Um, it is, it's a whole range of different actors. It's private investors, it's public investors, it's multinational corporations who are entering joint ventures with foreign companies. Um, so I think perhaps the first, uh, if you like, mis myth that is worth dispelling is, 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 is the plurality of, of, of the Chinese face, if you like, um, on the African continent. Well, this would also relate then to how, what relations Chinese investors and Chinese labour migrants also are creating with the local community and with the policy worlds of the countries where they're now living in. And would you say, could you see some kind of general... Um, patterns of the perceptions of the increased agricultural investments in Zambia. And does this then differ, this perspective differ between different, say, different policymakers and farmers and NGOs and local, uh, local authorities, etc.? I mean, yes, yeah, so if, we, if we, we want to talk about something concrete, um, by looking at reactions or responses, you have to look at you know who which responses are you gauging. So to give you a, a very concrete example, um, the Chinese are are present in in now local markets, local Zambian markets. 
the reactions in these local markets are very, very different. So they are two places where you are likely to find a lot of Chinese people selling sort of produce that they, they sell in Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia, would be Soweto Market, mm. which is situated at the central station in central bus station in Lusaka, where you have a lot of Chinese chicken farmers. Um, and another place would be the Tuesday market in, uh, in Kabwata. Um, it's a weekly sort of fruit and vegetable market. So the reactions to, to the Chinese presence are very different in these two places. Um, markets in Zambia are, are governed by sort of their own individual governing body. They have their own sort of regulatory authority that, that deals with the issues of, of the market players in different ways. So what you have in, in Soweto, for instance, is um, the traders are generally quite happy to, to be buying poultry from the Chinese because they're cheaper birds, it allows them to have a larger profit margin, and it has basically generated a whole new sort of sector uh, where people who were unemployed or didn't have any sort of source of income could basically come in and create um, enterprising Zambians would come in, a lot of them are women, um, and, and would start buying and creating some sort of form of employment for themselves. On the other hand, the producers are not happy with that, of course, because the increasing competition from the Chinese chicken farms is, 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 is undercutting their, their, their production. But what you have actually in Soweto market is, is a very high concentration of traders. You do have, I would say in terms of numbers and perhaps the in and out, people coming in and out, it, it, it's a place where people would go to buy in bulk. Bulk could be anything from 5, 10 chickens up to 300 or 400, depending on your orders and your clients. In contrast, if you look at what's happening in the Tuesday market, it's entirely different because produce, the, the, the Tuesday market is actually predominantly uh, attended not by local producers, but by traders. They're the ones who are selling, if you like. Yeah. And these local traders um, get their goods from local Zambian farms around the area. And they're not, they don't like the fact that the Chinese are coming in. So here would be the traders that are upset with the Chinese. Yeah. Well, the producers then obviously would find buyers but, of their products. But the producers are, are, are out in their farms anyway. Yeah. So they have, the, the trader who's going to that producer is sort of one amongst hundreds yeah. of different people. So he's not interested. He's not interested in the livelihood of that one trader. No. That's their problem. Um, the, the producers are not really there at the market, whereas the Chinese producers are. Um, so then th the reaction has also been very different. And that's also interesting. So what's happened on the Tuesday market, um, people have basically decided how, how should we handle this and in the Tuesday market for instance the Chinese have been um, uh, asked to produce goods that the Zambians do not. So the Chinese are no longer allowed to produce and, or at least sell, they're not allowed to sell at this market tomatoes, onions, potatoes, those vegetables and those fruits that are produced by local producers. Um, who decided? That was the authority, the, 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 the main sort of governing authority, you know, association yeah. um, of the Tuesday market. And that, what, what did that generate? That generated basically diversification of produce. Now you've got lots more sort of different options. I mean, you know, the Chinese went in and did basically produce, they, they, they followed the trends in the market. So they, that's why they're there. They, they arrive and they want to know, you know, what do people want? What do people need? What are they willing to pay for it? Um, mm -hmm. When can they pay for it? Um, and that's why they're present at the market. Um, and so initially they saw that people were buying tomatoes and potatoes and, and cabbage and, and, and specific, you know, pumpkin leaves. And so that's what they went and, and, and produced. Um, but when they were told you can't sell, you can produce those things, but you can't sell them here on Tuesday next to, side by side all our Zambian tradables, they said, okay. And so they started producing Chinese vegetables or things that they knew how to produce. So you have Chinese cabbage, you have tofu, you have soya beans, so you can produce tofu and, and a huge range of vegetables, which quite 
simply were not available yeah. in Zambia at the time. But, um, yeah. Was this done in a kind of a smooth and rather rapid transition? Or did it, it was, also oh, I mean, relatively. I mean, in, in this case, we're talking about something that's quite, uh, you know, the Tuesday market, we, it's, it's, it's not huge. I mean, although it's, it's extremely popular, it's one of the most popular markets, I would say, um, in Lusaka. But, yeah, I think people reached an agreement pretty, pretty straightforwardly. Um, the different stakeholders sort of met, discussed, assessed, and, and came to a very interesting conclusion, and then moved forward with it. And then that created a whole new set of patterns, which, which you know, we're observing now, which are also going to trigger a new set of reactions. And, you know, the market is, is fluid, and it's going to continue moving. But the... What I wanted to say was that they reacted in different ways. So in, in the case of the Tuesday market, you had this sort of decision that we're going to protect local produce and therefore, you know, you guys can you can sell other stuff. That's what they did. But in the in the Soweto market, they they basically said that the Chinese chicken farmers can come in, but they can only sell between two and eight o'clock in the morning. We're going from this very interesting concrete story of the local dynamics up to a national policy level. Um, China has not aligned their activity to the Comprehensive Africa Agriculture Development Framework, the CADAP. Um, would you see any opportunities for this to happen? Do you think that would be a beneficial outcome if China further aligned their activities on the CADAP? And why or why not? I think, I think that the way that most Chinese operate, whether they're private... I mean, the CADAP is quite specific because... There is no incentive for a private investor to follow that. I mean, a private or any investor who goes into a country in Africa basically should, or at least that's what tends to happen, what I've observed is that they, they, they follow the rules that are imposed or that are sort of proposed by the host country. So if the host country is not putting that forward and is not coordinated um, behind a, a consensus, mm. then the Chinese have no incentive or no reason to follow that. Well, going back again to what we discussed a bit earlier, how you describe how the Chinese food producer uh, mainly supplies kind of staple goods uh, to the local markets rather than you know, exporting them back to China or to the international market or to Europe mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, could you perhaps evolve a bit on this and then also see if you can see the, if there are linkages between agricultural farms and agricultural investments and how that links up to the broader Zambian economy? Um, I think, first of all, it's in in important to sort of situate where these Chinese farmers are in the sort of broader landscape of agricultural investors in, in, in Zambia, particularly foreign agricultural investors. And they're somewhere squeezed in between um, foreign large-scale commercial farms who are making a lot of money mm -hmm. um, and many of them who are exporting their goods uh, to, to Europe. Um, sugar, for example, is, is one of sort of the, the standard um, sort of non-traditional but very popular exports of Zambia. Um, and then sort of in, uh, more sort of struggling small scale holders at the bottom. You know, and China, the, the Chinese farmers, uh, including the commercial, sort of the slightly larger commercial farms, are really sort of sandwiched between those two, between that sort of dual, binary, dual structure. Mm. It really depends on if you're talking about economic integration, I think, or social integration. Um, and farms are quite interesting because they're unlike other, uh, let's say, commercial or, or economic entities. Um, a, a Chinese farmer is, is, is of, like any, any farmer, would, is generally attached to their land. And a lot of them are living, you know, households, individuals, families, or even companies, that they're, they're, they're living on the land in the suburbs or, you know, out in the bush. 
And generally, they're far more embedded in local social structures than they are with their ethnic community, simply because their survival depends on the economic viability of their operations. And unlike you know, immigration trends maybe a hundred years ago, your survival in the market no longer depends on your ethnic ties, or, or maybe to some extent. But essentially, it relies a lot more on your economic performance. We have some kind of general overview of the general trends, but could you see if there is something that is particularly new, what is happening now, uh, and then what the causes of this might be? What it is that is new and what are the causes? Um, it's a very difficult question, what is new? Um, <laughs> partly because it's very difficult to define what is new. But let's say one thing that the Chinese farmers are doing which other foreign farmers are not, or, or maybe not to the same extent, is, is building farms sort of from the ground up. I mean, having foreign um, agricultural investors coming into Zambia is not new, certainly mm. not. You know, you, you, there has been a history of, 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 across Europe, across the world, pe people have often moved across their borders in order to set up a life through farming in other places. But what perhaps is new in Zambia is that the scale and the speed with which they, they've arrived and they've operated, that's perhaps unprecedented. So that's maybe what is new. Um, secondly, is you know, in contrast to, to other investors, um, we're talking about you know private private smallholder investors like um, people coming from South Africa, people coming from Zimbabwe. A lot of them tend to buy um, existing farms, or they will uh, target investments within farm blocks, so areas that have been carved out already by policymakers, by ministries, as sort of priority areas of investment. Well, the Chinese, they're not doing that. They're not interested in buying a space in farm blocks, at least not yet. What they're interested in is um, getting small pieces of land um, and then cultivating that as much as they can. And, they, and they, they, they're essentially sort of driven to do that because they don't have the capital or the experience to do it, you know, in another way. Thank you very much. Uh, it's you. been very interesting and very yeah, good to talk to you. Great. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out more and read all the articles and issues of Great Insights, go to ecdpm.org.